everyone. It's your host here, Marcel. Last week, we hosted Anish Taylor and talked about race activism among LGBTQ people of color with a focus on South Asian communities. If that sounds interesting to you, you should check out the work of Kush DC as well as my interview with Anish in Chapter 5. So this week and next week, we'll be focusing our population-specific series on the last two letters of the LGBTQIA acronym, with this week being a conversation about intersex individuals. For those who may be unfamiliar, intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. Historically, intersex individuals have been subjected to medical interventions without informed consent to modify their bodies in order to have their anatomy be more in line with our completely arbitrary, totally constructed sex binary of strictly female or male. Oftentimes, when we think of LGBTQIA activism, being intersex is often not at the forefront of these discussions. And so I've brought along actor and activist Amanda Sines, who both identifies as intersex and also does intentional activism around intersex individuals. So really quickly, before we dive in, at the end of the episode, Amanda does make mention to questions that I had sent them before the interview, but didn't initially get to for the original sake of time. For context, those questions were... How does our binary view of sex impact intersex and trans people? And furthermore, how do we decolonize the idea of sex as a natural binary? And also, how does intersex activism contribute to health equity, particularly from a human rights perspective? I'm really glad that they called me out on these questions and that we were able to make time for these really important discussions. Anyways, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate those living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about activism as it relates to intersex individuals. So for those of you who may be a bit unfamiliar with the term intersex, as defined by the Intersex Society of North America, intersex is an umbrella term meant to describe anyone with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit into the typical definitions of female or male. So today, we are joined by Amanda Sines, an intersex activist and actor who's done a lot of great work to increase representation around and activism towards intersex individuals. Amanda has done some amazing work with the organization Interact, an intersex activism organization based in Massachusetts, and even made a historic appearance as the first intersex actor to play an intersex person on television on MTV's Faking It. So without further ado, Amanda, everyone, how you doing? I am fantastic. Also, oh my god, spoilers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the, the Faking It show is like oh man i mean there's i mean we're going to talk about this we're absolutely going to talk about like why this was important uh later on in this conversation but i've never been called an actor before i don't even call myself an actor um but i but i did that i hashtag did that uh so thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast i can't wait to like discuss all the nitty-gritty concepts that we're about to get into oh yeah of course of course so i guess before we jump into that you know nitty-gritty why don't you just like tell us a little bit about yourself so you know like your name job title where you live age all of that good stuff Right, right. Well, I mean, you did such a wonderful job of introducing me already, but my name is Amanda Sines. I am a 22-year-old recent college grad living in the wonderfully rainy Pacific Northwest, uh, (laughs) specifically Seattle, aka the fastest growing city in the United States. 
Hmm, I don't know that. Let's see. Oh, oh, yeah, there's... There's a huge politic around it, and it gives me a huge headache, but we're not here to talk about gentrification. We're here to talk about <laughs> the intersection of intersex and, and healthcare and healthcare rights. Just right off the bat, I'm a huge nerd. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time really, like, reading a lot of, like, classic feminist sci-fi texts. I was a huge fan of Doctor Who. I kind of tapered off a little bit there, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. What else? I, I like to bake. I yeah. currently have a yeast baby, which sounds weirder than it is, but basically it's just like a <laughs> like a sourdough starter. I'm not growing like a yeast within myself. It's um, <laughs> growing it in a jar so I can bake with it. Yeah, that's Got you. Awesome. mostly what I do. I read a lot. I read too much, mm. probably. Oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> So that's me in a nutshell, Marcel. That is me in a nutshell. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, thank you for clarifying the yeast baby, because for a moment I had, like, a moment of concern. Like, I was like, what? <laughs> like, where is this going? Obviously, there's no shame on defining equity, but, you know, I just wanted to just check in on that. Um, yeah, so, no, everything is A-OK. <laughs> great. But yes, before we dive into, you know, talking a bit about your activism, would you mind just, like, giving us a little bit more detail, I guess, on your backstory? So, you know, like, who were you as a child? Like, where'd you grow up? Like, what was your family like? things like that right well i think most of my life is contextualized with with being an immigrant i I immigrated to the united states with with my mother when i was about four years old Mm -hmm. we moved to a kind of it's not really even a suburb it's just kind of like a small town outside of portland Mm -hmm. portland oregon we lived there for a while eventually she like married someone who is the person that I consider to be my dad. Mm-hmm. And he is he's from northern Mexico. My mother and myself are from Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. So I mean my childhood was like it was it was it was going to going to public school and just being a tomboyish kid, being a nerdy kid, being mm-hmm. someone who I don't like I, I, I've had to relearn Spanish at some point in mm-hmm. my life. I was pretty fluent when I moved to the United States. But as a as an outcome of assimilation, I kind of forgot it. Mm-hmm. I relearned it when my grandmother came to visit and help take care of my newly born younger sister. Mm-hmm. I was about nine years old, um, and kind of like I mean, like that was a really huge moment in my life because it was kind of like the moment that I got to like really connect with my grandmother. And ever since I've been back to Costa Rica, I've gone back a couple times mm-hmm. since then. I feel like this this kind of like tragic urgency with wanting to get to know my grandmother and therefore also like my culture and my heritage. Mm -hmm. Like I I feel more Costa Rican here in the United States than I do when I go back there because that's even though like it's a huge part of my identity and who I am, Mm -hmm. those neighborhoods aren't where I grew up, you know? Right. So I feel kind of like an outsider there. I feel kind of like an outsider here. It's, it's the weird liminality of being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Do you and your grandmother talk often? Increasingly, actually. I think my uncle got her an iPhone, and so she's kind of like figuring out how to use FaceTime and stuff. So, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. The other day, I sent her. A, she was like, "Amanda, how do I send photos on like on Facebook Messenger?" And I like sent her like a bunch of screen caps to sort of like mm-hmm. detailing the steps. And I don't know if she got it. I don't. I, <laughs> I haven't received any photos, so I'm assuming probably not. Mm-hmm. But but that's okay. At least we're FaceTiming. At least I get to like, you know, see her and chat with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we try to be connected. We try to be a part of each other's lives. 
Got you. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I know that you mentioned earlier that, you know, you love to read books and like bake and stuff like that. Did you have any other hobbies as a child? Well, when I was 13, actually, specifically for my 13th birthday, Mm -hmm. a friend of mine got me a Led Zeppelin CD. Mm -hmm. And basically, ever since listening to the, the, the diversity of Jimmy Page's repertoire, I was like, I have to play guitar now. I just mm-hmm. I have to. <laughs> and so I did. I like I went out and I like I saved up all of my allowance money and I bought this like 20 year old acoustic guitar, which is no longer with us. Rest in peace. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, like music has also been a huge outlet for me. It is it's something that is always it's like kind of out of body for me. It's it, I feel like, you know, some people write poetry to express their emotions. I immediately go to sound. Mm hmm. Sounds have always been really effective and impactful for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I'll just, if I feel like having a quiet time, I'll just listen to some cigarettes. Or if I feel more excited, I might put on like, I don't know, Erica Badu. It all mm-hmm. depends. There's, I mean, music's great because there's so much of it all the time. Right. But yeah, I mean, like that's, that's also been a, a really helpful outlet for me. I think it's like one of the main ways that I, that I do self-care actually is actually just by like sitting down and playing, not even necessarily writing, but like letting something come out, letting, you know, forming this relationship between myself, my hands, mm-hmm. the instrument, the strings, the sound, it's, and kind of losing myself within that exchange. Got you. Huh. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Absolutely. I'm curious about you. So what do you do for self-care? What are you about? Oh my gosh. So I'm definitely, so it's interesting that you mentioned how you go straight to sound because my default is definitely movement. Mm. And that's kind of a more recent thing. More specifically, I've throughout the past couple of years been taking a number of like dance courses. And even when I was in college, like I got like a research grant to like study dance for a summer. More specifically, I actually went to New York City. And are you familiar with voguing by any chance? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay, so I actually got a summer research grant to study voguing in New York City. And so like, I kind of got involved with like the ballroom scene and like took a few like voguing courses and just like kind of oh, like expanded my, my repertoire there. But aside from that, you know, I've taken like modern dance courses, jazz courses, like just kind of like just different things here and there to kind of expand my own repertoire as it relates to dance more specifically. But you know, aside from that, I love running, I love going to like anybody's gym, you know, yoga, things like that, like any sort of movement. I'm just like super duper into and then next to that I definitely love you know like a nice journal intro or two I used to be much more Mm. into journaling when I was younger but now it's like I guess it's a little trickier to find the time but I try not to say that like I don't have time because you know you always have time for what you make time for so I need to right so yeah so definitely dance and journaling for sure I definitely went through like a small phase in high school where I was like in chorus and like kind of wanted to like be on my whole Mariah Carey thing but that never really played (laughs) out it's all good you know it's never too late whatever so yeah so I'd say those are my go-tos so yeah so but really quickly just before we jump into this conversation about intersex activism you know I just want to so you know I love to start these conversations with sort of like a little bit of an icebreaker so I have three questions prepared of which you can choose to answer one or all three whatever makes you feel the most like you Mm -hmm. just to kind of like give the listeners a bit more idea of like who you are so one mm-hmm. question is, what was a dream you used to have all the time? Another question is, who was your childhood best friend? And the last question is, how would a high school teacher describe you? So any of those questions, if you want to take a stab at them, feel free. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I think I'm going to start out with the high school teacher question. Mm-hmm. For context, I went to a Catholic high school, mm-hmm. which is 
Very weird. I, I mean, like, I was very much in the closet during that part of my life. I lived in eastern Washington, which is the more conservative side of the state. So kind of like out of the sense of like a self-protection, I guess. Mm. I never really like came out, at least super publicly. I had like a close friend group that knew. And I had one teacher who did know because we were very close. But to answer this question, I guess I would say that I was the one who may have taken things a little bit too seriously. Mm-hmm. Like in English class, I like, not only did I read the books, but I was like, okay, let's like, what what is actually like going on here? What is the subtext? How is it structured? In, in class discussions, like I was Hermione granger it up. Like I had my hand up all the time. I was like, I was that kid who was like, I don't know if it's the answer or the right answer, but I have an answer. Mm-hmm. I remember that I took this course about, uh, that was kind of like about social justice and Catholicism. And it was taught by a nun. And it actually ended up being like this really important and formative class for me because she talked about like, you know, the difference between like Christian idealism and then like actually like more like a material praxis to being a Christian. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that there's like actual actions that are that we can take to be better Christians and that are motivated by concepts of social justice as opposed to just going to church every every Sunday. I'm mm. not a practicing Catholic, FYI. <laughs> I just like, it's <laughs> a part of my life for a while. But uh, like that class in particular, because it was about social justice issues, like I did not play any games in that class. I didn't right. understand that there were like students who, you know, my peers who like dismissed police brutality or racism mm-hmm. or didn't think twice about it. It was like, I mean, to me, this was like, this was the state of the world. And that class was about teaching us how it is that we got to where we are today and what conflicts we're still dealing with today. Or I guess today being, you know, like, how old am I? 22, like Mm. five, six years ago, which, you know, are still very much relevant today. I don't know. Like, I just, I just always had questions. I remember Mm. this one time in biology, I was like, oh, I guess we understand that that protein does this thing because we like attach a radioactive marker to it. And then it goes through the process and we can see the process. But how the hell are we doing that? And why are Mm. we doing that? And like, why is it that we could even do it in the first place? And like, my my teacher's just like, you have too many questions, child. I don't know what to do with you. (laughs) And yeah, so it's just, that was basically just me. So naturally, I became a philosophy major when I was in college. That was my study. (laughs) I Um, love it. It's a very natural progression in hindsight. Um, Mm. At the time, it felt like I was like bumbling through everything. I started out pre-med, by the way. And uh, I went to UW, which is has an undergraduate body the size of like a small town. It's like tens of thousands of students. Mm-hmm. And the STEM programs are incredibly rigorous and super competitive, specifically to like weed out people. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here I am taking like the intro to chem and like calculus and stuff. And I'm just like, I, I all of these things are going over my head. So then I but then I found bioethics and I'm and the philosophy of science. And I was like, well, I can't like practice science, but I can think about science. And that's just mm-hmm. as good for me. Right. So, yeah, I guess I was I was the curious kid. That's a part of my personality that I I suppose like has persisted. Mm-hmm. I guess like this also like answers the question about like who I was as a kid. Mm-hmm. Always that. I guess like my mother likes to tell the story about how I would just like, you know, even as a toddler, saunter up to a, a table where the adults were were chatting mm-hmm. and just plop myself right in the middle of that conversation and like talk like an adult and like kind of interact and engage. I mean, not at that level because I'm like three years old, but like. Right. <laughs> So, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing all of that about your backstory. I think one of the pillars of the show, Defining Equity, is, you know, 
yes, we like to talk about activism as it relates to different groups of people and different intersections of identity. But also what makes it half of this pretty interesting is like kind of understanding where people come from, like what the realities were like, you know, just growing up and things like that. I feel like it helps to put these issues in context and helps to kind of humanize issues that at the very base are very human and very personal issues, but oftentimes can kind of get caught up in, you know, academic jargon and things like that. So I really do appreciate you being open about your lived experience, like things you went through growing up and stuff like that. No, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. Narrative is an absolutely powerful tool Mm -hmm. to use in activist work. It's the cornerstone of it. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I guess before we dive into like really talking about like the specific work that you've done, would you Mm -hmm. mind just, you know, for folks who may not be as familiar with intersex activism or like the current state of being intersex in this country, would you mind just painting, I guess, a little bit of a backdrop of, I guess, some of the common realities and circumstances of intersex folks in this country that kind of informs Mm -hmm. the work that you do around representation and activism? Right. No, absolutely. So I I'd very quickly like want to go back to the definition of just like what intersex is. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time when I ask people what they think intersex is, they talk about how it's a body that has both sex organs, basically can possibly reproduce himself. They like use the, the term hermaphrodite a lot. Mm-hmm. That, that in itself is a term that I really shy away from. So the underpinning to the definition of intersex is about how there are like physical or biological characteristics that are generally more diverse mm-hmm. than our current definitions of male and female bodies, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think most definitions say that it's like a, it's more complex than that. It's like our, our concepts of male bodied and female bodies aren't enough. And this is true, but I want to emphasize this idea that the human body is so diverse that it affects our genitals. I'm going to mm. say the G word, genitals. <laughs> it's not just our skin. It's not just, you know, spatial structure, whatever, what have you. It literally like every, like, we understand that sex is a spectrum. We understand that gender identity can be a spectrum uh, and all of these things can be fluid, but there there's always been a disconnect like that conversation ends when we come to our bodies because we think that our bodies are kind of like this infallible biological object which is kind of true but it's much more complex than that Mm -hmm. so intersex bodies are just diverse bodies but at the same time there's been a lot of anxiety about this diversity that has been mostly rooted within homophobia right Mm -hmm. a lot of the issues faced by intersex people kind of like result from that unnecessary surgeries for example are a huge part of the intersex experience historically because it was thought that we can normalize a body and we can normalize someone's gender by surgically intervening at an early age. Mm-hmm. A lot of intersex people have surgeries performed on them that are entirely aesthetic, mm-hmm. the function of which isn't therapeutic. It is to sort of uphold, maintain, and reproduce our concepts of what a normal male body or female body ought to look like. Right. The intersex body is illegible because of this. And so like under this framework and in order to make it legible, in order for us to understand intersex Mm -hmm. using a heterosexist framework, using a framework that relies on the, on the binary, you have to like physically alter and mold the body into, to fit into one of those categories. Right. The effects of the, yeah, sorry, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, 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 keep going, keep, keep, uh, yes, keep going. (laughs) All right, I'm not, okay, I won't stop, here I go. So, (laughs) the, the, all this treatment paradigm basically emerged in the 50s, right? Kind of Mm. before then, we can look at historical documents and, like, there has been judicial intervention into the lives of intersex people, but not necessarily surgical intervention. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of people, like, 
who have who've been intersexed in the in the late 20th and 19th century have experienced intense stigmatization and isolation. They have been kind of inherited anxieties over their body because of having to go through so many just like unjust medicalizing experiences. Mm-hmm. Most people who are operated on when they're infants, for example, have to go undergo multiple surgeries before they're even like 10 years old, mm-hmm. oftentimes without ever being told why it is that they're even being operated on. Mm-hmm. And then this goes back to the idea that like a surgeon or a physician who is in themselves in a unique position of institutional power is determining someone's gender and also someone's body for them. Mm-hmm. Like it was common practice to to isolate intersex people because they didn't want to jeopardize their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. They being, you know, doctors. If you look at the history, like Alice Dreger and Katrina Karkazis, who are mm-hmm. researchers, and I think Katrina is more of an ethicist, and Alice Dreger is more of a historian. They talk about how a a child who grows up to become gay or transition is viewed as a medical failure. You know, like like the doctors themselves failed at accurately prescribing someone their their gender right and because of this like a lot of people are sort of like forced into isolation like Mm -hmm. doctors didn't want to jeopardize their diagnosis by like introducing one intersex person to another and catalyzing a conversation through that so you know a lot of people like never thought they would ever meet someone else who was intersex let alone that intersex was even the category that existed in the world right yeah that's real thank you so much for that yeah it's very very important that you highlighted all of those things that you mentioned and i i want to kind of go back to this idea of i i like the way you put it sort of like how oftentimes people try to make intersex bodies legible through like a heterosexist lens so i'm just curious you know it seems like you know this idea of sex being something that's sort of like a quote like natural binary very much is kind of the root of a lot of the unnecessary like judicial and medical interventions that like intersex people have been forced to go through historically Uh and currently so i'm just curious like in your opinion how do we deconstruct this idea of sex as like a like a natural binary how do we make the diversity within sex like as known and as commonplace as like you know as we look at like skin color hair texture things like that no absolutely i mean the medical literature has a really complicated definition of sex as opposed to like a social definition Mm -hmm. the medical definition and which is one that's like purported not just or reported on not just by medical professionals but also anthropologists historians, philosophers kind of express that sex, as opposed to gender, right, Mm -hmm. is a complicated matrix of relations between chromosomes, hormonal makeup, internal and external genitalia, secondary sex characteristics, like, it's not just like your chromosomes, it's like the relationship between different systems in your body. Mm -hmm. So already it's complicated, already like, like judicially, sex is constructed as like, through the chromosomes and is explicitly defined that way. But in a lot of medical literature, it's like very complicated. Mm. I don't know if you like saw this thing, but there was a, I think in New York, there was like a bus that someone had like bought and then they like decaled it with the, the statement that like, Mm-hmm. xx equals like girls and xy is boys and that's it end of story period that's the, that's what? entirely misinformed like that's just not even the like reality a- mm-hmm. at all so for example i when i was 13 i was diagnosed with partial androgen insensitivity syndrome mm-hmm. which basically means that while my body is like generally female presenting my chromosomes are xy mm-hmm. right so like i pretty much have a vulva and it's there and that's like kind of just like how my body is mm-hmm. but my sex chromosomes are are male mm-hmm. i've like i've asked people what do you make of this right what do you make of the existence of intersex people people i guess like i'm, I'm asking people like on the other side of the aisle so to speak mm-hmm. and they're this is like blank face this is like what what <laughs> that's a thing <laughs> 
Right. And so it's it's eternally frustrating for me that people like make these essentializing claims without investigating where those claims come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I mean, it, it kind of like boils down to like a lot of our beliefs and values that we kind of ascribed to biology and nature. Mm-hmm. Nature doesn't exist in a vacuum. People sort of like invoke the concept and idea of nature to further their own argument and their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. So it's like entirely socially subjective how we think about nature and how we think about biology. Right. You know, like a a more conservative approach to like a transgender bathroom bill, for example, relies on a biological essential framework that claims that your chromosomes are exclusively going to determine your sex. Mm -hmm. Intersex is left out of this conversation because it kind of reveals a lot of the problematic underpinnings of these statements. Mm -hmm. And they're not questions that a lot of these legislators just want to address. Mm-hmm. People wish that sex was like not as complicated as gender. The truth is that sex is just as complicated as gender. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think that socially speaking, a lot of folks are kind of slowly beginning to under. And when I say a lot of folks, I mean sort of like you know your typical like I guess quote mainstream cisgender population is like starting to understand gender as something that's a bit more expansive as we've been taught but for some reason sex is something that is considered still oddly binaristic and i find that even in activist circles people don't really check that assumption so i think that the way that you just define sex and the way that you just like kind of painted that out really it reveals that i mean you know historically what's made being intersex so i guess quote complicated for people is like us basically for all intents and purposes just being extra like people having these Mm. frameworks and thinkings that like are inaccurate and we struggle when we see the truth in things but instead of expanding our own definitions of how we view bodies we try to like hide it we try we try to like you know intervene we say oh this is like a syndrome this is a disorder this is xyz in order to you know to kind of like comfort our own you know pre-existing biases so i think that the way you just painted that out was amazing so Tell me a little bit about your... I'm blushing, Marcel. I'm blushing. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about your activism. Like, describe some of the efforts you've been a part of at Interact and Beyond. Well, you already spoiled the big one, which is faking it, but that's okay. (laughs) No worries, no worries. Um... So faking it was like a pretty big thing. Faking it was the moment where someone who was intersex was actually, I guess, in charge of their own narrative. Mm -hmm. When we talk about representation in media, I think it's much bigger than just seeing yourself on the screen. It's much Mm -hmm. bigger than like, oh, I'm gay, there's someone gay on TV, cool, we're all represented. It's also about validating different aspects of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. We can think back to sort of like, like if we if we understand media as in like within a, a white supremacist framework, for example, the the dominating ethnicity within uh, Western media are white people. Mm-hmm. In the United States, it's like white people, right? Even though they're not a hundred percent of the population, right? So representation, mm-hmm. I think, is about owning your own narrative. But it goes back to the question, I think, like who gets to write your story? And if you're if you're black and someone's writing your story or like the experience of like African-Americans and they're white, how authentic and true is that going to be? If Mm -hmm. someone's straight and cis and they're writing about trans people, oftentimes it's very tokenizing and pigeonholing. Mm -hmm. With intersex, it's the same thing. A lot of intersex narratives have been utterly sensationalized and romanticized by the media and also misrepresented. And so with with MTV interact was able to sort of like partner with them and influence their their storytelling so that lauren the intersex character in the show could have an authentic and relatable story 
And we were involved with that. We were able to like be in the room with the writers and the producers and say, this is the medical reality and the lived reality of what it's like to be intersex. It's not peachy. Like some of us are very excited that like we can't have kids and therefore like, you know, do whatever we want. It's, it's, it's Mm -hmm. much more complicated than that. And there's a lot of angst and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of introspection that goes into it. Yeah, like, so I guess, like, that's that's a really big one, our, you know, Interact's partnership with, with Faking It. Really quickly, would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about Faking It and who Lauren is, like, as a character? Absolutely. Faking It is an angsty teen drama put on by MTV. <laughs> Basically it, high schoolers being high schoolers, figuring out sexuality, figuring out romance, being awkward as all hell. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's just study and it's hilarious and it's, like, mm-hmm. quirky. Unfortunately, the show's canceled. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I know. It's all sad and stuff. But, like, the big episodes are still up or whatever. Mm-hmm. The premise of the show is that every character, every main character, has, like, their own little secret that they're hiding. And, therefore, they're faking it to the rest of the world, to their peers. For some people, for, like, one character is that they're, like, gay and they're, like, faking being straight. Lauren is intersex. And she's this new kid that moves into this high school and no one really knows about her. She really doesn't know about anyone. So she's going to try and be, like, the popular girl. She's going to try and be the perfect girl. And her secret is that she is intersex and is afraid that people are going to think of her differently or think of her as being less than a woman. Mm. And so that's that's her faking it story. She's like one of the... She's a pretty she's a pretty real intersex character. The Freaks and Geeks had an intersex character for like an episode. They never used the word intersex, but it was like pretty there. Mm-hmm. House, you know, with Hugh Laurie, mm-hmm. God bless him, has an intersex character who was like a model. There's this like kind of myth about how a lot of models are intersex because they're 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 like so much of the ideal woman that they can't actually be a real woman. Hmm. And I mean, coincidentally, there is a Hannah Gabby who is a intersex model and she's recently like come out as as intersex to the public and she's a part of our interact family and does like public speaking around the issue so Mm -hmm. i mean we are present like in the modeling world it's just like a weird it's a specific mythology that a lot of people like take up so lauren is like this beacon that we really tried to work with to use to make sure that there was like an accurate narrative out there in the world. Mm-hmm. So we had like like Kimberly, Cecil Min, and Emily Quinn were a huge part of that. Emily like lived in LA at the time, so she was like able to like actually be there in person and like actually be in that room and in those spaces. That was a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And I like gave my own input from you know hundreds of miles away. So <laughs> most of my activist work is kind of remote in that sense. Mm-hmm. Locally here in Seattle, I participate in panels. Just last week, I gave a talk at Seattle Central to a sociology classroom. Like, I think a lot of my role as an activist is tied to being an educator. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my life trying to understand how intersex is like historically constructed and also socially situated in the 21st century. And I got some ideas about that that I want to like share with people. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, I think like things aren't going to change unless people are introduced to the knowledge that's out there. Right. I'm a very, I'm very much a conversational person. Mm-hmm. I believe in the power of conversation. And so like, that's kind of, that's more of along the lines of like what I've been doing recently. Got you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you ever, like, have you always been, I guess, like a natural educator? Or is this something that you kind of jumped into as a result of your interest in activism? Um, I like teaching and I like talking. 
<laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like kind of been a part of myself, like just who I am. I, when I was in college, I was a TA. I was an undergraduate TA for a course. It was a, a feminist sci-fi course. We like read a lot of like really radical works, ranging from like Ursula Le Guin to like The Left Hand of Darkness to like Octavia Butler and some of like her short stories, as well as her novels. Parable of the Sower. Have you read it? I have not. Oh my god! Honestly, Hulu should have done that instead of The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. <laughs> but I'll be like, they're both re- they're both really great works. Don't get me wrong. But no, teaching was teaching for that class was great. I was absolutely a really great time, and it was mm. really satisfying to know that like I was able to like not only like share my knowledge, but that that knowledge was impactful and that it changed people's way of thinking. I try to be as like respectful of that relationship as possible, a relationship between educator and like student, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really important and like, special relationship, and it's not one that I want to disrespect. Yeah. I don't want to turn people off from a subject because of like my attitude or my personality. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, it's this, yeah. all of this is it's bigger than you and me. Got you. So do you ever create, I guess, like educational materials and things like that? Like, I'm just thinking about, for example, I mean, you were on faking it, which is amazing. But I guess just like, you know, do you have any like YouTube channels or like a social media presence? Just something that kind of like, sort of, I guess, combines like education with reaching out to like a broader audience? I am working on starting a blog, mostly because I I write a lot. I'm a thinker, you know, Mm -hmm. so like the best outlet for me to make sure that I like get across an argument and to make sure that that argument makes sense and as well structured is through writing. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of want to start doing that. I do have a Twitter that I rant on every now and again. And I do have an Instagram that I like post photos of every <laughs> now and again. Pretty sure my Instagram is like 90% photos of my partner mm-hmm. and the occasional cat. <laughs> but I mean, you know, what can I say? Right. Um, but I'm kind of like developing more of a following. And so I, I do want to like actually like use these platforms kind of like in an activist sense mm-hmm. but it's all it's all emerging right now marcel this is like kind of like why i love this moment i guess mm-hmm. is because like the ball is rolling it's it hasn't like hit you know terminal velocity mm-hmm. but it's like it's getting there so like this summer one of my projects is going to be like how do i professionalize the heck out of my activist work so that i have a a visible and accessible presence mm-hmm. to people got you that's amazing. That's amazing. And I guess just like way, way, way in the future, like what I guess are your goals for your activism? Like, is there anything in particular that you're like, oh my God, I have to do this in the next, say, like decade or just like in this lifetime, really? Oh my God, there are so many ideas. <laughs> like the other night I was talking with my partner, her name's Alana. I was talking with Alana about like the, the concept of nature and how Mm -hmm. there are like social attachments and normative attachments to how it is that we think about nature and deploy the concept of nature. And I'm just like, like, I'm like, I'm talking about this all excitedly. And at the end of this, I'm just like, dude, I got to write a book about this. Like, this Mm -hmm. is just like, this is a thing unto itself. And then on top of that, like, kind of like, you know, kind of like doing some more research on the into this podcast, I was like, man, like health equity, healthcare, access to healthcare as a human right. And how it intersects with intersex, <laughs> intersects with intersex, uh-huh. <laughs> is also hugely important. I was a bioethics minor in college, and so like I do have like a bioethical framework to be able to sort of like understand intersex. That's mm-hmm. hugely important. What about the like, relationship between a patient and their physician? Mm-hmm. Because like the intersex subjectivity often like takes place 
in a hospital room when you're wearing a hospital gown and some guy is like rubber gloving your entire body. Like that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. So what does that relationship look like? How can we change the relationship between a patient and their physician so that the physician understands like their effect on the patient and also like build a much more, I guess, like egalitarian relationship between the two. There are a lot Mm -hmm. of people who are intersex and also like trans who just avoid healthcare altogether because they have experiences that lead them to believe that healthcare is toxic mm-hmm. and you know unhelpful, real, very real. Do not mm-hmm. get me wrong, but that that problem I think is, is is highlighted with intersex people, and it's something that I would love to change. I've been working with a professor and a practicing physician at the medical school mm-hmm. as kind of the liaison between the social and the medical. Mm -hmm. The last time we met, I spent like six hours in his classroom as like a teaching assistant, basically, Mm -hmm. kind of like evaluating their diagnostic model and also talking about the social determinants of health and how Mm -hmm. health and well-being are like not only intricately like entangled with one another, but don't just have to do with disease and illness, but other variables as well that affect an individual's health and well-being. Right. Yeah, like I, there's like a lot that I gotta do, basically. Right. <laughs> so many. T- <laughs> I have so many questions, Marcel. So many questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. Please, okay, so when you publish that book, let me know. Um, I will absolutely order it immediately because this just I just based on this conversation alone, I know it's gonna be everything. So. Yes, and I am so, so, so glad you brought up the health equity piece because that was definitely one of the things I wanted to ask you, but I mean, you've already kind of answered it. It's just, yeah, I think that just when we look at sort of patient-provider interactions, it's interesting because like in my work, oftentimes we talk about, you know, this idea of medical mistrust and how oftentimes healthcare institutions have like proven to be violent and toxic towards various groups of people and like how, you know, we can work to promote access to healthcare while also being very cognizant and intentional and, you know, really being compassionate towards the very justified feelings of mistrust that many communities have surrounding healthcare. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work to do there. Oh my god, yeah. So yeah, definitely something that I find very interesting as well. Yeah, so I guess just like, you know, closing out, I guess a little bit on this activism conversation, you know, like it sounds like you've done like a lot of really amazing work across fields. Like, so for the folks who you know, perhaps might be newer to activism or might identify as allies, etc. How can, you know, how can they work to create a world that has less stigma, much more body acceptance, and like basically a much more inclusive way of thinking about sex, but also just like, you know, this idea of nature and what that encompasses. Right. Because I've, I've had like lots of conversations with friends who like aren't intersex or aren't queer in any sense of the word. And when I like engage with the con- with the topic of activism, I feel like they, they leave with the idea that they can't do anything unless they're devoting every waking minute of their life to activist work. And that's mm. just like, that's, I get it. I get it. You like, you got guilt. You got, you want to like, make sure that <laughs> the world is a better place. For sure, dude. But at the same time, like no one's asking you to like take on this huge mountain of work. Ultimately, what you can do as an ally is simply just educate yourself. That's step one. Mm. If you're in the healthcare field, first of all, you should be reading like quarterly publications or weekly publications that deal with your field. Like mm-hmm. you need to be up on educating yourself so that your healthcare practice is like, is it's up to speed, you know, like mm-hmm. the locus of responsibility is on the individual to educate themselves, not necessarily someone like you or I, but I mean, we're just the, we're the ones who like ask the questions and direct people to resources. I think it just, boil, like, yeah, I mean, like I say, I think it just boils down to like educating yourself. You know, if you don't mm-hmm. know what intersex is, 
you probably have a smartphone that could tell you. True. <laughs> you know, Google is free. So, you know, can yeah, always start there. Exactly. Like, oh, you don't know what intersectionality is? Just type that into, like, Google, and I'm pretty sure Kimberly Crenshaw's name will come up. Right. That's, that's step one. Step mm-hmm. one, right? And yeah. then you can sort of, like, then knowledge can turn into practice, and then you all of a sudden you have this... You know, you have a radical new understanding of how the world is. How are you going to change your interactions and your relationships with people Mm -hmm. to reflect what you now know? Right. Like, let's say you have someone in your family who's gay and everyone kind of like side eyes them. And maybe you just read the book Gender Trouble. Maybe you just read, maybe you just like watched someone's video about being gay or like a slam poetry piece about being gay. What are you going to do about this now? Like you're in a position where you can act. Mm -hmm. Will you? That's just like what it boils down to. Like you're a human being with the ability to change maybe not the whole world, but at least you could change your own little world and the people in it. So that's a good place to start. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much. That is so entirely helpful. And I'll be sure, you know, when this episode mm-hmm. comes out, providing some resources where people can like learn more and people are like, oh my God, like there's so much I need to learn. Like what? I got you. I got you. Mm-hmm. You know, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing all of this information around your activism. There's certainly so much more that, you know, we can all do to learn more about, you know, not only the experiences and realities of intersex people, but also this world is like, there's just so, so many different types of folks, you know, we can always do our part. But I'm just curious, you know, what are some things you kind of touched on this a little bit when we first started the conversation, but what are some things that I guess you're involved with outside of your activism, some things that kind of help you self care and stuff like that? (sighs) Well... Reading groups. Reading Mm. groups are nice. I don't know. Like, I'll grab coffee with a friend and I'll ask them about their life. Mm. I think self-care is kind of just like about, you know, lifting your head from the grindstone and then looking around you and leaving your work for a little bit. Mm. Like, at least in, in my activist work, it's mostly voluntary. And so, like, because of that, I feel like I can devote a lot of time to it. It's on my time. And since it's my time, I could spend all of that time researching It's important to step away from that. I've Mm. learned because you burn out. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Yeah, so to avoid that, I'm just like, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee. Or like, dude, let's go to like our local watering hole for like a drink or something. Or like, Mm -hmm. or reading poetry or just reflecting, journaling. I mentioned playing music earlier. And that's been a huge part. Like actually just like hanging out with some people and like, Having a, a musical conversation with one another is always a really good time. Mm-hmm. There isn't like a right way to go about doing self-care. It's really up to like what works for you. If you're a baker in your spare time, go bake. If you want to like quilt, go make a quilt. That's freaking awesome. It's going to keep you warm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it may or may not even be tied to your activist work. Listen to a podcast while you're like quilting. Mm-hmm. Listen to this podcast while you're quilting. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> it's just, it's just, I mean, I try to do something that will, like, help me take a step back. Because I know myself and I will fixate on an idea until the cows come home. 
but the cows never come home, so I have to take a break myself. <laughs> yeah, like that's 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 ultimately it, friend. Got you. Awesome, awesome. And so, you know, you've done some television appearances. So I'm just curious, do you have any guilty pleasures, like either as it relates to television or just kind of like more broadly with media? Oh, wait, are you asking me if I watch trashy TV? Yeah, that is essentially my question, yes. Oh um, my gosh, okay. We well, can have an exchange. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't consider this trashy at all, but like, oh my god, this season of RuPaul's Drag Race is killing me. Oh, can we discuss? Okay, so what is... Yes, yes. There might be... Well, I guess by the time this comes out, there won't be any spoilers. Okay, so what are your thoughts on the season? Like, who's your favorite? Like, who are your favorite queens? Like, what's up? Oh my god, Valentina was my number one. Oh. Oh my god, I'm so sad. She was perfect. She, I mean, like, obviously we can, like, she don't, you know, it's complicated because she'd only been doing drag for, like, ten months, right? Right. And I think that was, like, a huge point of contention because there are queens who've been doing drag for, like, years and have been, like, a part of the community for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, that that time brings with it its own shared of like positive and negative experiences and maybe the short 10 months that valentina like was doing drag wasn't quote-unquote enough mm-hmm. personally i think that's like kind of borderline gatekeeping yeah yeah but i mean all she had to do was lip sync all oh. she had lip sync and she didn't and i was so sad right see so to provide some context for people who may not watch rupaul's drag race well one get on that because it's everything but currently you know we're on season nine and there was this amazing legendary drag queen named valentina who was like honestly very very talented she was like funny like her looks were really great like she was very like well-rounded she had a weak week and so she so basically rupaul's drag race if you are underperforming for a week you have to do something called lip syncing for your life so it's you versus the other queen who like kind of performed the worst and you have like a lip sync battle and then basically whoever does better typically stays and so valentina went against this queen nina bonina brown who's great but like eh, she has some personality quirks that kind of like you know it, it made it evident that like she was probably on the chopping block so valentina it was her first lip sync all she had to do was like even if she was mediocre it would have been totally fine but she got really nervous. She got really in her head. And so during the performance, she kind of, she, like, I think it, she might have just forgotten the words. Like, I'm not sure if she just never learned them or what happened, but yeah, her performance just wasn't great. And so she ended up going home, even though people thought she was probably going, like, I honestly thought she was going to win. RuPaul literally said, you could have gone all the way. Yeah. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually really sad. Then Nina went home the next week and I was just like, oh God. <laughs> so now I'm just like, I'm just hoping for Peppermint, really. Like, I'm just, I'm team Peppermint at this point. Mm. Like, I'm not sure, like, if she'll actually win. I feel like she probably won't, but I just, I love her so much. And so I really, I'm, I'm really, her, Sasha, or Shay Coulee, I would be totally fine. Yeah, yeah, actually, like, I was about to say, like, my faves are, like, Sasha and Shay Coulee. Like, that's yeah. gonna be, those are my top two. <laughs> Anything else that you watch aside from Drag Race? Um, okay, but secretly, like, between you and me, I, like, I watch a lot of anime, and it's kind of, like, you know, it's a vestige from, like, my middle school years, I recently got back into it because Attack on Titan was like apparently a really, really good anime. And it is. I decompress with that. We are literally the same person. I love anime. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have heard of the anime Trigun. I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. It's like, it's 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 basically like Cowboy Bebop, but like mm. less, less dramatic and much more like comedy quirky mm-hmm. slash also combination firefly uh like the, the sci-fi show mm, yeah like the the whole like layout is very 
like humanity has colonized the galaxy and for some reason the galaxy is also the old west Mm. so they're like gunmen and like what's the word for someone who like oh a bounty hunter (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah like they're like you know like gunmans and bounty hunters and stuff and it's like it's really fun what can I say? It's just really fun. That's amazing. Have you ever watched Out of Curiosity? So my all-time favorite anime is one by the name of Angel Beats. It's like 13 episodes. Mm. Okay, it's like, it's a. am not sure if it's like more niche or like what exactly the popularity is. But basically, it's a show about this purgatory world in which all the people who are in the show have died, I guess, in your, your typical life. And so like they kind of live in this purgatory world that like mimics everyday life and essentially the point of this world is to like get like give the characters sort of a normal stress-free childhood that they weren't afforded when they were alive but then basically there's like this person who like oversees the world her name is angel and i don't want to like spoil it but basically like it kind of goes down like it's gotcha. just, like it's yeah it's 13 episodes though i literally bawled watching it and i usually don't cry as a result of like television so like it was mm-hmm. it was everything so if you have time definitely get gotcha. into that I wrote it down. It's on my list now. Wonderful. Yeah, it's very low threshold. I love any show that's like 13 episodes or less, like ideal, because the Naruto's and Bleach's of the world that have like 5,000 episodes, I'm like, I don't have time personally. Yeah, true. Yeah. So I guess it's like kind of looking back, you know, we've talked a lot about like your experiences growing up. We talked a lot about your activism. Just like based on who you were as a child and how you thought of who you would become in the future, do you think that the person you are now is like in line with the person that you thought you would be? Uh, no, I don't think it ever is. Mm-hmm. When I was, I mean, like when I was diagnosed, I thought I'd be in medical school by now. Mm-hmm. It's like life never plays out the way that you expect it to. Mm-hmm. I would say that I think I'd be really happy and proud of who I am and who I became. Mm-hmm. I'll tell myself that on a bad day. Because it is, it is comforting. I think that I've grown a lot, and I think what I've learned and who I've become is something that, like, like yeah, I would, I would make thirteen-year-old Amanda proud. Mm-hmm. Got you. It's, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's just hard to say. You know, like when I was a kid, I, I struggled a lot with, with like my body and what my body was doing and what it was gonna be. Um. I remember like being 10 or 11 years old and like not having like the language for it, but I had the feeling that I didn't want to be like grow up to become a woman. Mm-hmm. I saw like what that role was like, you know, performatively and kind of like regulatory, I guess, like, mm-hmm. and it just didn't resonate with me. Um, I found community. Mm-hmm. I found people whose, whose lives and just how they are is, um, you know, like subverts that. So mm-hmm. like, like seeing other people live their life and live their truth really helped me to get there. I don't think I would have been able to do that on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a hopeless romantic and I still am a hopeless romantic. And mm-hmm. you know, I remember like thinking after a year, after I was diagnosed, um, can, is anyone, am I ever going to find someone who can love me and my body for what it is? Mm-hmm. You know, what if I, because I, my inner sex condition is pretty invisible, except mm-hmm. for like a couple scars and a tattoo that I now have above those scars that I got uh, mm-hmm. as a result of a um, a creative performance that I did. But like, I, I felt like, like maybe disclosing that to a romantic partner could destroy everything. Mm-hmm. I never, like, I know I didn't want to encounter heartbreak. Um, 
I have since, you know, I have grown and I have, and I have loved and I have hurt people and people have hurt me, but it's like, that's, that's the game of life to some extent. Um, Mm. and I'm happy to say that I was wrong, (laughs) you know, Mm. like I've, I was, I was wrong when I, you know, in thinking that I would never find acceptance, that I would never find community, that I would never find love. That was, you know, I, that's something that I would tell younger me, mm. you know, those, your fears are real, your fears are valid, but they're also going, they're also going to be wrong. Yeah. Um, so that was, that's like a big part of it, I think. Um, I think for a lot of us who, who are gay or identify as queer or trans, you know, if we find a home within the acronym, for example, mm-hmm. like I think a lot of us have anxieties about acceptance. Um, I think I, I was very lost because it's not like there is like, like the intersex community, for example, is very remote. It's very digital. We mm-hmm. intersex happens like everywhere. If there were people in Antarctica, there would be intersex people being born. But like, it's it's so like dispersed that mm-hmm. very there are very few like community like gathering places um like in, in in major populations in cities so like it's not like we can like i can go to my local like lgbt center and expect there to be like an intersex support group mm-hmm. um we're trying to make that happen don't get me wrong that's like we've got mm-hmm. a few people in interact who are sort of like trying to create more like materialized support groups um but um that kind of like isolation kind of still persists. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found people since then. I have mm-hmm. found community and I have found a home among peers and people who have similar experiences to me. And that's been invaluable. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know if that was possible. You know, like I, mm-hmm. when I was diagnosed, I was like, I, I didn't even know what, I didn't know what intersex was. I didn't know what intersex looked like. I didn't know who, like what intersex people were or if they were going to be like me, mm-hmm. a lot of them aren't like me. And then there are a lot that are, you know, it's, it's, there's, you know, there's, there's diversity even within like a group such as us. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those would be my parting words. Yeah. That's, oh my God. Do you have me all teary eyed? That's so, that's no, that's like super real though, because I think that, I mean, obviously you're talking from the perspective of, intersex folks but i think you know that idea like you mentioned you know of finding acceptance of finding community i mean that resonates across like so many groups of people and i think that like i mean the work that you all do with interact and you know like making like just having that visibility even if digital what have you like just i mean these types of spaces literally save people's lives and it really kind of puts in perspective that like you know they're not alone and that you know, like, there is a future out there. Like, I really don't want to fall into this whole trope of, like, it gets better. But, like, you know, really, truly, like, I think that, like, you know, I think it, especially when you're young, it's hard to kind of, like, I guess, put things like that in perspective. But, you know, the older you get and, like, the more community you find, like, like, this world, like, there's so many different types of people. Like, you know, even if, for example, like, the, quote, mainstream society, you know, has a certain perspective, like, in your own world, like, we all have our own sort of, like, individual perspectives of what this world is. So if you can fill that with, like, people who are supportive and stuff like that, that is absolutely crucial. Um, And so I appreciate you sharing that.
I appreciate you, Marcel. Thank you. Oh my god, I appreciate you too. Uh, I wish I lived in Seattle so we could like kiki. Um, <laughs> but, like, but yes, but if I'm ever in town, I'll certainly let you know. Um, and if, yeah, versa, if you're ever in DC, let me know. So yeah, I guess just you know to finish this off. Like, do you have like any final words? Like, where can we connect with you? Yeah. I I wanted to talk about a couple things. Mm -hmm. I guess three. There was a question that you asked on your sheet about decolonizing practices, which kind of threw me for a loop, yet was utterly prescient. I think this is another conversation that could take like 10 minutes. And then there is another question about like formulating intersex from a judicial perspective and litigating from an intersex perspective and also Mm -hmm. sort of like reconciling intersex within a human rights framework is also like that's also a really valuable conversation. Mm-hmm. So here are like here are two subjects that I feel like are huge. I don't know if we have the time for. We certainly do. I mean, please by all means like yes, yes. okay, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So this question of colonialism I thought was really interesting when relating to intersex identities because like colonialism one of the ways of like framing it is just saying that you have a power, aka Europe, with its mm-hmm. own subjective position and its own organization, social, social organization structures, and then they go out to a land and commit unspeakable violences towards an indigenous population and erase their culture and then replace it with a European model. Intersex is pre-colonial, uh, and intersex is something that is pre-scientific in the sense that intersex existed before science discovered it. Mm. Gun Allen, she is, was, she parted in 2008, a native, an indigenous woman here in, in the States and a scholar and a poet and an activist who writes a lot about pre-colonial indigenous practices and social structures and gendered systems. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like really interesting when you, when you asked about like, how can we decolonize our concept of gender? Well, First of all, that's like we have to recognize that gender exists as a system and it's not a universalized system. Different cultures mm-hmm. have their own practices and systems and roles associated with different genders. So, like, there is an intersex gender mm-hmm. in, in Maori culture, for example. There is a trans, I guess what we would call from a Western perspective, a transgender within multiple indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. But it has been the European and therefore colonial practice to erase the existences of these genders to fit a more easily regulated European system, which is, again, also tied up intricately with systems of power and oppression and exploitation and capital. It's really complicated. Yeah, but at the end of the day, just because it's new to Europe doesn't necessarily mean that it's new to humanity. Exactly. So like, that's kind of like where I was, I was thinking when you asked about colonialism, which I was just like really surprised that like it was even like on the question sheet in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people like kind of like don't really want to talk about colonialism and kind of like shy away from it because it makes them nervous, them being white people. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but it's an important conversation to have, right? I don't want to be tokenizing when I say this, but mm-hmm. a European conception of gender, which is binarist and heteronormative, isn't the only like system out there. It's not the only way that we can frame our understanding of gender. Right. And lording the European perspective as the objective and most true form of our gendered system is reductive. It is 
paradigmatic and it's it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's frustrating to me that in order for intersex and trans identities to be recognized within a Western perspective, they have to first be pathologized. They have to first be, quote unquote, discovered by science. Right. Because otherwise it's not real. Mm-hmm. And science is problematic. This goes back to the conversation that we were having about nature and that mm-hmm. people sort of like use nature as a sort of like rhetorical device to like advance their own subjective like ideas and values. Eurocentrism and white supremacy and colonialism functions in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what those are my two cents. What do you think? That's real. Yeah, honestly. So I mean, certainly a lot of similar ideas. When I was writing that question, it was something that I kind of discovered, I guess, more recently, I guess, or rather, I've discovered that language more recently of, you know, decolonizing the way we view gender, sex and sexuality. You know, like, as I was growing up, and like, as I was kind of like, broadening my definitions of gender, sex and sexuality, and like, what that looks like for me, and like, how the messages and understandings that I received growing up were not necessarily the most accurate. Like, I think a lot of folks who, you know, find home within the LGBT community certainly kind of have a similar experience of questioning systems that are seen as objective, that are seen as just the default. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until more recently, you know, as I learned more about colonization and like kind of what that looked like across countries throughout history, that like the view that we have of gender, sex and sexuality, yes, certainly kind of comes from this Eurocentric standard and that, you know, it's not enough just to be like, oh, like, I think our understandings of this aren't you know, the most accurate is also important to call it out for what it is and to call it out as a colonial practice to, you know, mm-hmm. to make reference mm-hmm. to the understandings of gender, sex and sexuality that still certainly exist in the world and to not fall into this trope of being like, oh, well, the Western standard is like the default standard. And like, like, that's like kind of the basis through which we should understand like other cultures. It's like, it's just mm-hmm. one of many potential views. Yeah. So when I was asking that question, I was just curious as to like how we can tie all that in together and have that broader conversation. Because I think when you like you have to understand why folks think a certain way, why systems operate in a certain way and like to do so, you have to kind of look at history. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of like what I had in mind when I wrote down that question. And I'm really like I'm really glad that like you called that out because I think earlier I'm not sure if I used the language decolonize. I might have used the word deconstruct by mistake. But yeah, I'm very glad that you made reference to that because yeah, that was very intentional and like. My apologies if I, you know, didn't exactly use that earlier. Oh, no worries. I mean, it still led to like a really great conversation. So and we got here anyways. Mm -hmm. Someone that I think is like really worth reading is like the work of Maria Lugones. Mm -hmm. She's a scholar and activist based out of New York. Mm -hmm. And she has a specific paper called The Coloniality of Gender Mm -hmm. that delves into the subject of like indigenous gendered practices and systems and the relationship between those systems and European systems. And then also like the longstanding effects of uh, European colonization on on womanhood, on mm-hmm. masculinity, on trans identities. It's very comprehensive and I think it's a really good piece. This is something that's like informed my understanding. Got you. Well, I certainly already pulled it up. I this will be reading for the train. When I jump on the train later, I will cert oh my god, this looks great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this resource for sure. And I'll also be sure to make reference to it in the show notes as well. But yeah, aside from that, were there any other I know you mentioned sort of like placing intersex identities within a judicial context. Did you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it, it ties into the, the the concept and question of human rights and health equity because it's like it's health is a human right. Mm-hmm. It has been like the UN has repeatedly said this, like the Conventions on the Right of the Child is one and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights all talk about health. But health is not just 
like I said earlier, disease, there are social factors that influence health. So intersex like activist and scholar Georgian Davis, for example, mm-hmm. a lot of her work frames the violations that or the experiences, I guess, of a lot of intersex people as violations of their human rights. Mm-hmm. So like we we have like a right to so like if it's the case that we have a right to health and well-being, what would that look like for someone who's intersex? You know, like so we have like unnecessary cosmetic surgeries that if anything aren't therapeutic and are not contributing to our sense of well-being, well then we have to eliminate this practice. Right. That's a really huge component. The idea that an individual has a right to self-determination and authority over their body is something that affects intersex people deeply because so many of us have been operated on either coercively or when we were infants and weren't able to give consent. And it's often not talked about as a human rights violation. Mm. But like using that language, I think is really important because it kind of like adds this, this other, this, this layer of, I guess like gravity, I guess. Like right. That's like more importance to it, more urgency mm. to an already urgent issue. Exactly. And I was just going to say briefly, yeah, like I think that intersection is really important talking about the intersection of like healthcare and human rights and how it's interesting how oftentimes unmarried those concepts can be, like even working within public health, like just how like I feel like sometimes language can be helpful, but also it can be tricky just because we often will create different words to describe different things that are like innately interconnected. So I think that like framing these practices as a human rights violation, I I mean, I would absolutely agree with that assertion. And yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that it, you know, adds gravity, it adds urgency to, you know, what's going on. And yeah, I think that, you know, the more we can bridge human rights, health equity, healthcare, all of those things together, the more impactful we can be in our activism and in the work that we do Mm -hmm. so yeah well amanda this has just been just just amazing oh my god thank you so much for this conversation this was oh you're so welcome i had a really good time that was yeah me too i also had fun yeah i am so happy this happened i know you mentioned that you you're developing a blog and things like that are there any like social media channels or like websites or anything that folks can use to connect with you Absolutely. Y'all can hit up my Instagram and my Twitter. My handle is Gaylosophy. Mm-hmm. Like philosophy, just like get rid of Phil and put a gay in there. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, that's basically it. You can hit up those sweet, sweet DMs. I will hopefully respond. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, I was about to say I'm a cancer, so it takes me forever to get back to people. But I don't think that's like necessarily a quality that's like exclusive to cancers. Right. <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, yeah, but like, like I say, I am down to uh, share my knowledge and at least like point people in the directions of other people who might answer their questions better than I can, at least. Mm. I like to talk. I like the internet. I like memes. If you want to send me a wholesome meme, that's also wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just I I am open to the public. And if you're going to be on the social media sites, then you'll probably see that one day I will have a blog or at least something that's like a little bit more like concrete and direct and where the content is like specifically like problematizing, you know, binarism and like exploring intersex subjectivity. Like that's that, those are all things that I'm going to like definitely want to explore. So, yeah, if you want to stay updated, hit the follow button. Right. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, I will certainly be. Well, I don't I don't have a Twitter, but if I did have a Twitter, I would absolutely be following you. But I encourage those who do to follow at Gaylosophy because one, that's, that's a sickening Twitter handle. And also, I mean, just based on this conversation alone, I'm sure the content you post is amazing. So yeah. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on to the show. You've truly blessed us with your intellect and your experiences. And I really do appreciate you making space for myself and for the show and this platform. So you have my thanks and yeah i am so glad we were able to connect this is wonderful yeah i'm glad we were able to connect too and you know thank you for your work too thank you for getting this podcast up and running i think this is important you know millennials are obsessed with podcasts Mm -hmm. it's what we do it's like it's out there it's accessible this is important work and i wanted to thank you for that and thank you for inviting me on to have this conversation with you oh yeah it was a good time of course of course thank you so much I hope you all enjoyed Amanda's genius during this episode. Be sure to check out their social media and the work they do with Interact. I had such a great time during this episode, and I'm really glad we got to explore how many of the frameworks and perceptions we have of gender, sex, and sexuality that create stigma and marginalization for so many groups of people, of which intersex individuals are a part of, stem from a Western colonial perception that is but one of infinite ways of understanding these identities. There's a lot of stigma to a race, but it's empowering to know that the root cause is just a cultural myth and that regardless of how we identify, we can lift up and create frameworks of thinking that allow all of us to win and be celebrated. If you have any questions or thoughts on the episode, feel free to get in touch with us at definingequity at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be continuing our population series with a conversation around asexuality, particularly as it pertains to people of color. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.